And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for the joy that obedience and the opportunity to serve your people brings as we minister one to another. You've given us all a special place in the body of Christ to serve. But always remind us that our greatest joy should come from the fact that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you for such a great salvation that you have brought to us. And thank you, our Father, that you would give us the privilege to share it with others. We pray and ask, even in this week, that you would raise up more laborers, for we know the harvest is great, but the laborers are so few. Lord Jesus, you told us, don't say four months and then comes the harvest. But we are to look up our eyes that there's always ready harvest available for us. So help us in the sowing and the reaping process this week to be obedient. And as we open your word today, may the Spirit of God open our hearts. May he move in every seat and every person on every campus, those who are listening later through radio, those who are watching on the internet. God, may you speak to all of us. May we be humble and teachable and pliable in your holy hand. And Father, help me, strengthen me. Use me, I pray, for Jesus' sake, and in his name I ask it. Amen. Take God's word, would you, this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we've been working chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John. The book of Revelation is really the conclusion to the Bible. Remember the word revelation, apocalypsis in Greek, means to unveil or to uncover. And so in some of our English Bibles, the title is the Apocalypse, and rightly so. This is an uncovering of Christ, and it's the last book of the Bible, and it really describes the final consummation of all things for both the believer and for the unbeliever. Revelation, as you study it, (laughs) we've been in it for a while, I know, but we're nearing the end. We're just a few months away. It will capture your attention. It will stir your imagination. It will point you to the grand and glorious end that God has for His people. But sometimes, like the topic this morning, the destiny of the doomed, it will cause you to be quiet and to be still and to think hard. Sadly, today in evangelicalism, the doctrine of eternal retribution, the doctrine of hell, has virtually disappeared from the pulpit. And most people don't view it as a real, literal, actual place of torment. The word hell is more often used as a swear word, or sometimes it is used to describe difficulty where we say he or she is going through hell. When I began pastoring this church nearly 30 years ago, 86% of Americans believed in a literal, actual hell. According to Pew Research, it's dropped to 54%, and the younger in age, amongst millennials, only 21%, and 
And among Generation X, only 16%. But if you could survey all the demons that are functioning and at work in the world, according to the gospel, 100% of all the demons would affirm that hell is a real, literal place of eternal punishment. But pastors don't preach on it. It's considered almost rude and offensive, unpopular and impolite to even mention it. Now, you may think that the doctrine of hell is something that you don't like, and therefore a pastor should not preach on. Listen, I don't like war and murder and poverty and racism and child abuse, but my liking of it does not change the reality of it. Hating to die and go to hell doesn't change the fact that you should know what God says about this doctrine of hell. Now, I hear some pastors speak about hell, and they almost seemingly take delight in it. I take no delight in the doctrine of eternal retribution any more than God does. He desires none to perish but for all to come to repentance. But I will preach on it because God has commanded me to preach on the whole counsel of Scripture. And so we come to the next paragraph here in our verse-by-verse exposition of the doctrine of hell as we look through the revelation. Now, as born-again Christians, we need to know what God says. And if we really understand the doctrine of eternal retribution, your heart will be filled with a sense of compassion towards those people that you know and love and those whom you will meet. Christ is coming back. He is going to bring about the consummation of all things. There's over 300 references in the New Testament alone to his return. And when he comes, the Bible is clear, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said in the last chapter of the Revelation, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And then the final thought comes from the lips of Jesus where he says, Yes, I am coming quickly, to which John says, Amen, meaning I believe it. And then he says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. But not everyone believes what God has plainly said. One megachurch pastor denies hell, his book being reviewed in the New York Times best-selling book list, said, quote, that hell only makes people's stomachs churn and their pulses rise. I need to tell you this morning, by the time I'm done, your stomach may be churning and your pulse may be rising, but that's not always bad. It's a good thing to be confronted with truth. And then you have these liberal theologians who deny the truth of Scripture altogether. They just write off the doctrine of hell. But that doesn't totally surprise us either because Jesus taught, as did the apostles in their letters, that at the end of time, this would become a prevalent position. Paul, for instance, said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Hey, listen, these are exciting days in which to be alive. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son. And even if you know just a little bit of prophecy, you can see what is happening in our day and our lifetime. But when He comes the second time, it's going to be so different from His first coming. He came the first time as a Savior. When He comes again a second time, He will come as a judge. He came the first time in humiliation. He'll come again with great exaltation. He came the first time as a suffering servant. When he comes again, the Bible teaches he will come as a sovereign king. 
He came the first time to save sinners. He'll come again to judge sinners. He came the first time as a sower in grace. He will come again as a reaper with great wrath. When he comes again, there'll be no tree to hang upon, but there'll be a throne that he'll sit on. When he came the first time in poverty to a cross, it will be so different because he is coming again in majesty, the Bible says, in the clouds in glory. They mocked him. They put a reed in his hand. They mockingly said he was a king. But he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will come a second time with a rod of iron. And our passage this morning unfolds for us one of the things that he is going to do. So we need to pay close attention to what God says. I hope you brought a Bible, Revelation chapter 20, beginning this morning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. For those joining us for the first time and for the benefit of the rest of us, let me set the context of where we are in this long study of the Revelation. The opening chapter in the seventh verse gives us the theme to the book that he is coming in the clouds with great might. That's the theme of Revelation, the return of Jesus from heaven. And just so we would not mess up the Revelation, God also gave us a divine outline as this chart reveals. It's based on Revelation 1.19. John is instructed by Jesus, therefore write the things which you have seen, that's the past, And so he writes of the glorified Christ in heaven, there in his exalted, wonderful, magnificent body. We'll study that some more as we work through the last two chapters. Then he writes the things that are, things that are present, and he speaks of seven literal functioning churches that in many ways are representative of the blessings and challenges that churches have faced throughout the age. And then he is to write about the things which will take place metatata, after these things. And so beginning in chapter 4, there is a turning point all the way through the end of the book where the consummation of all things are described. So the Christ is described in the opening chapter, the church in chapters 2 and 3, and then the church does not appear again until the second coming of Christ because the church is not present during the time of the great tribulation. And just so we wouldn't miss it, The outline closes with the words, after these things. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, we read, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. Metatata, after these things. Now, if you remember, this is what we call the rapture. A door is opened up in heaven the church is caught up. And again, that's why the church is not mentioned again until the second coming of Christ. And what begins to unfold, especially beginning in chapter 6 all the way through the 18th chapter, is the judgments that God is going to bring upon the earth during that time. 
When we come to chapter 22, we'll look at five reasons why God is going to allow the great tribulation period to unfold upon the earth. But seven years of absolute horror will take place, and men will despise it so much they'll want to die, but the Bible says they won't be able to. Death will flee from them. He writes during this time of a bottomless pit where millions of demons are unleashed across the planet. He'll write of this one world leader called the Antichrist and his compatriot, the false prophet, who will rule the earth and blaspheme the Lord Jesus. And then, as we studied in the 19th chapter, he writes of the battle of the Armageddon, when all the nations of this world will sway, will turn um, under the sway of the Antichrist and seek to go against the people of Israel. So Jesus is first coming for us. Jesus said in the upper room where he really unfolded the doctrine of the rapture, he said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where is the Lord Jesus right now? He is in heaven, and he's coming back for his saints. We will meet him in the air, and he will take us to heaven. But that is a distinctly different event from the second coming where he comes to the earth. And so in Revelation chapter 19, we saw what happens when Jesus comes to the earth, how he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And then in chapter 20 through 22, he begins to unfold for us what will happen after that return. And so when you come to chapter 20, the second coming of the Lord Jesus has already taken place. He promised through the Old Testament prophets that the Christ, the Messiah, will rule and reign on the earth. The length of it being a thousand years is a New Testament doctrine, but the fact of it is covered throughout the Old Testament prophets. And so now here in the immediate context in verses 11 through 20, The millennial reign of the Messiah is over, and God is about to judge all the lost people of all time. One group will find themselves eternally in heaven by this point, but the other group, those present at the judgment we're going to study today, will find themselves eternally in hell. And so the first six verses, if you remember, describe the fact that Satan and his compatriots first are bound at the beginning of the millennium, the false prophet. He is bound there with um, the Antichrist. But after the thousand years is over, then Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. We read in Revelation 20, if you look in verse 10, and the devil who deceived them, the people of this world, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now understand, hell was never created for man. Jesus made it plain that it was created for the devil and his angels. He said in Matthew 25, to the unbelieving world, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so if you die and go to hell, you're going to a place that God never designed for you to go to. It will be your fault, as we will see today, and not his. And so God now is about ready to put the last period upon the last sentence, upon the last paragraph, upon the last page, upon the last book of human history, and he wants us 
from this judgment called the great white throne judgment to discover and to understand five different aspects of this coming judgment. If you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, the first thing I want us to look at is the place of judgment. Let's first think about the place of judgment. We are told now in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. We are now approaching the end of all things where God's people will enter into the eternal state forever and ever and ever and the lost into the lake of fire. Time as we know it at this point has come to a conclusion. The bodies of all the lost people of all time have been drawn out of the graves. Their souls that have been in Hades during this time are removed as well. The two are united and they stand here at the great white throne judgment. In essence, this is the supreme court of the universe, and God Almighty is the supreme judge. And I want you to notice several descriptions of this place. It's called a great white throne. Great speaks of the power of this throne, and white speaks of the purity of this throne. The throne of God reflects the purity of God. It is so bright, Isaiah the prophet tells us, that the cherubim need to, or the seraphim need to cover themselves. You don't want to stand before this throne. And if you are a born-again Christian, you will not be at this throne. As we'll see in a moment, the only people who are present at this throne are the lost people of all the ages. This is the great white throne of God, and it's a terrifying place. It's an awful place. And notice the Scripture says that earth and heaven fled away. It fled away. How so? Because the current heavens and earth, the Bible says, are destined for fire. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told that God burns the universe with fire. And in Revelation 21.1, what we're going to pick up on next week, God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The current heavens and earth will be burned up. And then as 21.1 teaches, a new heaven and a new earth will be created. By the way... There are these Christians today who either teach theistic evolution, that God used the process of evolution to create the world, a clear denial of what God has revealed in Scripture. That's heresy. You cannot be a sound Christian. Tim Keller, who wrote a book on apologetics, I would never allow his book in this church as long as I'm the pastor, because he taught that theistic evolution is a viable alternative. It is not. He is no apologist at all. He is undermining the historicity of Scripture and what Jesus himself said about the creation. But then there are those Christians who hold an old earth theory, who want us to believe that we've been here for millions and millions of years because they want science to fit in with the Bible. And they say, well, between the days or eons of time, and we'll discuss this next week when we come to 21-1, but I tell you they have a problem because in a moment, not six literal 24-hour days, but in a moment, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He will take no time at all in which to do it. So at this throne, there's no rocks, there's no trees, it's in outer space, so to speak. There's no place to hide Adam, when he sinned, he, he tried to, in his shame, hide from God, and God comes into the garden. Where are you, Adam? Everything's stable, everything's solid, everything familiar will be gone. 
no place to hide. It's just face to face with God Almighty. That's the place of the judgment. Second, I want us to think about the person over this judgment, the person over the judgment. We're told now in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. John speaks here of him who sat upon it, whose presence is so awesome and so terrifying that earth and heaven fled away. Now, who is this person who is so awesome and terrifying that heaven and earth flee away? Who is this judge upon the bench? Some might think that it's God the Father, but clearly it is not. It is God the Son. It is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You say, how do we know? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In John 5, 22, Jesus said, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The apostle Peter, when he was there in Caesarea by the sea, preaching to Cornelius in his home, he told that group and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, talking about Jesus in the context, this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. The apostle Paul there in Mars Hill in Acts 17 said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This same Christ who today can be your savior, if you die without him, you will meet him as judged. Men who have ignored him, who have cursed him, who have used his name in vain, who have blasphemed him, will be face-to-face with him. Now, we have studied already in the early chapters of the Revelation how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit equally inhabit the home, the throne. But at the throne in heaven, they have various responsibilities. God is one, but each member of the Trinity takes on various aspects of ministry. And this aspect of judgment is principally given to God the Son. And so if you reject him and you die having ignored him, you will meet him. He is the person over the judgment. Now, beyond the place of judgment and the person over the judgment, I want us to think this morning about the people at the judgment. Let's think about the people at the judgment. We read now in verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, how? According to their deeds. Now, I think it's important that we define some terms that John has already covered if we're going to truly understand these verses. There are two kinds of resurrections in the Bible. One is called the first resurrection, also called the resurrection of life. And the other is described as a second, as a later resurrection. And Jesus calls it in John 5, the resurrection of judgment. Drop uh, down to or up to verse 4 here in chapter 20. Go up to verse 4 for a moment of Revelation 20. And let me refresh your memory with what we've already studied. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus 
and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. These are tribulation saints. And because they refused to take the mark, the image of the Antichrist, 666, the common way in which they will be executed is by beheading. And then we're told, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. These who come to life initially, this is called the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this concept that some pastors will present to you of one big general revelation, it's usually found in Calvinism and amongst replacement theologians who deny the literal reign of Christ on the earth. They apply a different principle, a different hermeneutic in interpreting prophecy than they do the rest of the Bible. In fact, they apply a different hermeneutic in even the way they interpret the Old Testament prophecy. How was the Old Testament prophecy for Christ's first coming fulfilled? Literally, actually, just like God said. And so, because they want to dismiss the future reign of Christ, because they have a whole system of theology that's built on the fact that the church is the new uh, Israel, so to speak, they think, well, there's just this one big general judgment when people of all time are brought before, and they think that's what's happening, but they haven't read very carefully or studied very hard. On the contrary, the Bible is very clear. There are two resurrections. The first is that of the saved. It leads to blessing. The second, separated by a thousand years, is that of the lost, and it leads to judgment. And we'll see in a moment that no one in the first resurrection will be lost, and no one in the second resurrection will be saved. So we need to ask an important question. If this is the first resurrection, if you've read your Bible at all, then you know there have already been some resurrections that have taken place before this. So in what sense is this the first resurrection? I mean, think about it. Christ, the first fruits, as Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 15, in fitting with the feast of first fruits, there are various feasts in the Old Testament, four in the spring, three in the fall. The three fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled prophetically. But each of the feasts picture what the Messiah is going to accomplish on behalf of the church as well as Israel. At the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath, we would call that Sunday today, the, the, the priests would be given a single stalk of grain, and it was representative of Jesus, who's the first fruit. He is the first one ever to be raised from the dead. There were people who were raised to life only to die again, but Jesus was the first ever to be resurrected from the dead in a glorified body. And if you remember from Matthew 27, immediately after his resurrection, the Bible says a select number of tombs were opened and certain Old Testament saints walked around the city of Jerusalem before they are seemingly brought up into heaven. So we already have seen some people raised, not to mention Paul speaks, for we shall not all sleep, and the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink your eye, very, very quickly, 
the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up, rapto in the Latin Bible, and so we use the term rapture. When you, someone says to you, well, the term rapture is not in the Bible. No, it's not. Not in the English Bible. Neither is the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a biblical truth. You call it what you want. It's the catching up of the church. It's the rapture. We'll be caught up. We'll meet the Lord in the air. That happens all the way back in chapter 4. Then in Daniel chapter 12, and we've already looked at this earlier in the 20th chapter, Old Testament saints are raised at the end of Jacob's trouble, after the great tribulation, along with what we just read in these two verses in chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, tribulation saints who are beheaded, they too are raised at the second coming. So in what sense is this the first resurrection? Well, clearly, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the focus is not about the time of the resurrection as it is the kind of resurrection. There are two kinds of resurrection, just like there are two kinds of death. There's the first death, which results in burial, and then there is what John describes in our chapter this morning as the second death, which describes someone who's being cast into the lake of fire. Even so, there are two kinds of resurrections. There is the resurrection of the righteous, and there is the resurrection of the wicked. And the first resurrection program is separated by the second resurrection program by 1,000 years. And just as the first death did not occur all in one moment, but over millennia of time as people individually one by one die, even so the first resurrection program doesn't take place in one moment. It happens over a period of time as various Uh, groups are brought out of the grave. Now, keep that in mind as we read about the people who are being judged here in verse 12. Please notice how these dead are described. He says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before their throne. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that no one is excluded from this judgment. No one is so great that they can miss it and be overlooked And no one is so small that God will just go by them. No one is so great that they are superior where they won't meet God in this judgment. And no one is so small that God will overlook them. There's no big shots and little shots at this judgment. Everyone here is lost. There's no movers and shakers who somehow can escape this judgment. The emperors, the dictators, the prime ministers, the presidents... The wealthy, the well-connected will stand alongside the paupers of this world, people that no one ever even knew their name. Doesn't matter how much education you've had. Doesn't matter how much culture or money you've acquired. It doesn't matter how much fame you had in this life. Every single person, the great and the small, will meet God at this judgment, kings and paupers alike. Now, I suppose you could take the great and the small and further subdivide them into at least four categories that are highlighted in the New Testament. First, there's the man who is the out-and-out sinner, the man who hates God, who hates Christ, who hates the Bible, who hates preaching, who hates pastors. He hates the things of God. He will be in this judgment. He lives for sin. He lives for self. In one sense, whether he knows it or not, he is living for the devil. And he shakes his puny fist in the face of God Almighty as if somehow he can outsmart God and that he is greater than God. Now, I assume that there is none here like that this morning unless you've come to mock me and make fun. But I want to tell you the Madeline Murray O'Hares, the Bill Mahas, 
the Hitlers, the Hefners, the Madonnas, they'll all be there. The drug pusher, the pornographer, the perverts, the out-and-out God-haters, they'll all be there. That's the first category amongst the great and the small, but there's a second dimension to this group, and it's those that I call the self-righteous. I'm convinced because Jesus taught it in Luke chapter 18 that hell will be filled with self-righteous people. They think the message I preach is for the thief, the murderer, the pimp, the drug addict, the drunk, but it's not for them because they are, quote-unquote, a good person. Like the Pharisee of old, they don't see their need to be saved. And that's why on one occasion to some highly religious men, Jesus said the prostitutes and tax collectors are more likely candidates for the kingdom of God than you are. And another day to the same group of kinds of religious, self-righteous men, he said it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, quote-unquote, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. The self-righteous man thinks he has no need to be saved because when he looks at his, himself next to the prostitute, he thinks he's just sterling. But God measures us by Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and we all fall short and makes the ground level. And I fear that millions of Americans, because I speak to them every week, why should God let you into heaven? And they begin to rattle off one work after another that millions of Americans in their self-righteousness will be damned. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness, and by the way, that's what you need if you're ever going to meet God. You need the righteousness of God. You need the perfection that He has. And your righteousness like mine falls woefully short. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Do you know what that means? It simply means that if you could become righteous, if you could be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, by your church membership, by your baptism, by following the golden rule, or anything else you could think of, then Calvary was the blunder of the ages. God was a fool to have sent His Son to die if you could have earned your way. But God was no fool. You cannot save yourself. And so the self-righteous are included in the great and the small. Some people are going to hell because they are immoral and drunks and homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and anything else that's wrong that you can think of. But other people are going to hell because they are self-righteous. They've never done any of those things. From the world's perspective, they are living a decent, clean life. Now, there's a third group included in the great and small, and I will call him the procrastinator. These are people who know they are sinful. They know they need to be saved, but they put it off. These are people who, in essence, listen to the evil one who says, not now, not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, just later. And I want to tell you, as you read the New Testament, you discover that there's an urgency to respond today. Today is the day of salvation. And there are millions of people in hell this morning who would give a million words, worlds like this one if somehow they could make a decision for Jesus, but they cannot. You see, the procrastinator, and I'm sure there's probably some listening to my voice this morning, he just puts it off. 
He thinks later and he continues to flirt with sin and play with sin and later I'll become a Christian. But every time you tell God Almighty, no, who said today you'd be saved, you should be saved, your heart doesn't get softer. It gets harder and it becomes more callous. And it's a foolish thing to procrastinate. Now, there's a fourth group to be included in the great and small, and I suppose it's the saddest group of all. It's not the out-and-out sinner. It's not the self-righteous man. It's not the procrastinator. It's the church member. The church member who's never truly been saved. People who have gotten their names on the church books, on the church roll, but they've never had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I am convinced that there are people who come here year after year, I'm not their judge, Christ is, who are lost. Why am I convinced of that? Because Jesus said it would be true in every church. Where the wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of the judgment. Where there would be people who would outwardly claim to be born-again Christians and the Lord Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. So here's John, I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. And I want to tell you this morning, the devil doesn't care how he takes you to hell, whether you are drunk in the gutter lying there in your vomit, or whether you are all cleaned up and sitting in the church pew this morning, he's just glad to have you however he can get you. Listen, there's the place of the judgment. There's the person over the judgment. There's the people at the judgment. Fourth, I want you to think about the principle for the judgment. What is the principle for this judgment? Let's continue reading now in verse 12 and verse 13. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, underscored in your thinking, according to their deeds. Again in verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, how? According to their deeds. Now, death here is a synonym for the grave, the place of burial, and Hades for the soul. The grave has the body. Hades has the soul. Now, understand, as we'll see in a moment, just like for the Christian, absent from the body, present with the Lord, for the unbeliever who dies today, absent from the body, he's present in Hades. But that's not the final resting place of every unbeliever, as John will highlight for us. Hades is the holding place for lost people. It's the jail, so to speak, for departed spirits until they meet the final place of judgment in the lake of fire. Just like today, a man who commits multiple murders and he goes to jail and he waits until his trial comes and then he is judged and sentenced to his punishment. Even so, those who die without the Lord Jesus, they immediately go into Hades and they are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies at the great white throne judgment where they will give the final accounting. And it doesn't matter if they are in the dirt of the ground or the depths of the sea. It's a common first century myth written in literature outside of the Bible. Many thought that somehow if you died at sea, your body would be eaten by fish and you would cease to exist and you could escape the judgment of God. And God wants us to know there's no escape. Whether you are lost at sea or buried in a grave, 
from the seas, from the frozen arctics, from the steamy jungles, wherever you are, God will call up the dead of all time before this great throne. It doesn't matter if your body was burned in a fire, incinerated in a crematorium, or buried and turned to dust. He will raise it up. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now, understand that when a man goes to hell, the body he has today is not fitted for hell any more than the body I have today is fitted for heaven. Paul said this mortality must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I need a new body, an eternal body like Christ suited to walk on streets of gold. Even so, the lost man, his body that he's in today is not suited for the place of eternal judgment. God will raise up a new body for him. And God won't have to go to some courtroom to get some extradition papers to call people up and summons them into his courtroom. As a supreme judge here of the whole universe, he will call people up wherever they are. You will not be able to hide God Almighty will call up the dead of all time, the lost of all time, and as we'll see in a moment, He'll create a new body for them suited for the lake of fire. Now, twice over in verses 12 and 13, I hope you underlined it or circled it, we are told that these people are judged according to their deeds. The books were opened and the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that God is keeping a record of everything. Everything that you do, every thought that you've ever had, God writes it down. Every word that you've ever uttered, God has recorded it in his book with indelible ink. It is there forever. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul the apostle wrote, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. That means things that no one else knows. God knows, and he wrote them here in your book. You think, well, I got away with it. No one knew it but me. God knew it. He wrote it down. Indeed, be sure the Scripture says your sin will find you out. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12? But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Think about that. Words of profanity, words of dishonesty, words of exaggeration, words of gossip, God wrote it down. Jesus said, nothing is covered that will not be uncovered. Everything, word, thought, and deed that was wrong have been written in God's books. There are some books, it's plural, biblia, we got our word Bible from it. It's actually a plural word, biblia. That is, we have 66 books within one, but it simply means scrolls or books. Now, we're not told precisely how many books there are. However, what will be horrifying to many people is that the omniscient, omnipresent God wrote down everything and underscore it. Literally, it's rather wooden, but it says each one or each of us shall be judged according to his deeds. Now, why does God do this? Remember what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 16? The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and will repay every man, how? According to their deeds. 
Paul says the exact same truth in Romans 2, that he will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, remember, in this courtroom, in this place, it's not to determine if you go to heaven or hell. Everyone in this judgment, without exception, goes into the lake of fire. This is not a judgment where God takes the good deeds and the bad deeds, and He sees if one outweighs the other. There's no such judgment in Scripture. And yet, these people are being judged according to their deeds. For what reason? For two reasons given in the Holy Scripture. One is their deeds will prove whether or not they've ever met Jesus. You see, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Paul can speak of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. There's all kinds of people in this world who say they are born again, and their life is unchanged. They have no love for the things of God, for the people of God, for the will of God, and they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. You say, but I know a lot of good people who are lost who do a lot of good things. Yes, you do, and I do as well. They do good things for the glory of man, for the praise of self, to appease a guilty conscience, but not for the glory of God, not out of appreciation for a blood redemption that delivered them from the wrath that is going to come. And so the Scripture will say in Isaiah that all of their righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Not all their bad deeds are like filthy rags, but all their righteous deeds, the best things they've ever done before, an absolutely holy God are like filthy rags. And so James says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. That's how absolutely holy God is. So they're judged first according to their deeds because a man's deeds will prove whether or not he's been born again. But secondly, he is judged according to his deeds so that God will mete out just punishment. You see, in every instance when Jesus or the apostles describe hell, they describe it as a place of horror, as an awful place for anyone who spends eternity there. And yet Jesus taught as did the Apostle Paul, that somehow in the perfect justice of God, there'll be varying degrees of punishment in hell. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out the the 12, and he said this, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. He also warned, as recorded in Mark chapter 12, concerning the hypocrites who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Listen, just as heaven is a magnificent, glorious place for any child of God that goes there, it won't be the same for every child of God. 
We will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 indicates where God will look at your service as a saved person and he'll reward you accordingly throughout all of eternity. Somehow in the perfect justice of God, hell could be more miserable for a self-righteous man who heard the gospel week after week or to a Hitler who annihilated, they say, now some 7 million people. It won't be the same. God in his perfect justice will mete out wrath according to their deeds. Now, that leads me to one more observation. Let's think about the penalty from the judgment, the penalty from the judgment. In verse 14 and in verse 15, we are told, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I want you to notice several aspects of this final penalty as it comes from the hand of God Almighty. First, those who make up the second resurrection without exception are thrown into the lake of fire. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It is sure, it is certain. There's no fancy lawyer who will be able to get anyone off. It is done. It is a severe place. Again, descriptively here called the lake of fire. There's no shred of mercy here. There's no grace here. You will not be able to plead with God at this place. You cannot get saved here. It will be forever too late. You say, Pastor, I was raised in a church. I was told hell was not a real place. These are just symbols. But it's not a real place. Well, you were lied to. Not to mention, a symbol is never as powerful as the reality. We recently took a picture in our yard of what I call a, a purple sunset. It was just breathtaking. I think the greatest sunset maybe I've ever seen in my entire life. And I sent it to my kids, the picture, but it didn't even do justice to what my wife and I saw that day. And I want to tell you that the symbol is never as great as the reality And what I find so interesting is that more is said about hell from the lips of incarnate love by the Lord Jesus than any other single person in all of the Bible. And when Jesus describes this place of torment, he describes it as an eternal place of torment. He speaks of eternal fire and eternal punishment. Listen to these words from Matthew 25, 46. Of the saved and of the lost, he said, these will go into eternal Ionion is the Greek word, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal, same word, life. The Greek word translated here for eternal to describe the place we call the lake of fire or Gehenna hell is the same word that is described to the place where you and I will spend in eternity. And it's the same word that modifies in 1 Timothy the eternal God. So we have Seventh-day Adventists and cults and other groups that deny the eternal retribution of God. The Scripture is clear. The same word that is used to describe the eternal God in eternal heaven is also used to describe eternal wrath. And no one goes to hell where they're just extinguished. That's the false doctrine of what we call annihilationism. You know, some people say, well, if you're lost, you you just get dropped in a grave and you cease to exist. That's not the picture in Scripture. And the beast was seized, Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast, he's the Antichrist, was seized. 
And with him, the false prophet, that's his compatriot, that's his John the Baptist who point men to this false Christ. And the beast was seized with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The first two humans to enter the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And that's a thousand years before this event. And a thousand years later, when the millennial reign is over, they are still in this place of judgment. Why? Because as Paul says, the Lord Jesus will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and he shall deal out eternal retribution to those who do not know God. This is an eternal place. People don't go there temporarily, and then they are later restored. No, this is forever. And twice over, it's called the lake of fire in our text. And back in verse 10, it's called the lake of fire in brimstone. Now, I told you that Hades is a temporary place in which a lost man goes. But eventually, Hades and the lake of, is cast into the lake of fire. Do you remember Jesus in describing the coming picture of eternal retribution. He spoke in Luke chapter 16 of a rich man who died and went to Hades. And he died and went to Hades not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. Let me read it to you. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and said, Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now, I've heard preachers sometimes compare hell to Alcatraz, you know, that prison that no longer exists. It was out there off the coast of California, an island surrounded by water. And they say, well, the lost go to an Alcatraz kind of place a place of judgment where there's no escape, but it's surrounded by fire. No, that's not what the text says. They are in the fire. This man is in torment. And Revelation 20 says they are in the lake of fire. And listen, when you minimize the doctrine of eternal wrath, what you are really doing is you are minimizing the meaning of the cross. Because on the cross, when Jesus shouts, Tetelestai, paid in full, it's finished. What he paid for there in Golgotha has to equal the payment that you would take an eternity to do. But of course, he as an infinite person could accomplish in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people would take an eternity to do. But please don't buy into any watered-down renditions of hell because Jesus never waters it down any more than the Bible waters down the payment that Jesus made there on Golgotha. In fact, when Jesus wants people to understand the final resting place, Gehenna, he speaks and illustrates it with a valley outside of Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem and they say, well, that's the valley of hell, or more literally, that's the valley of Gehenna. And it was the local garbage dump in the first century. It was the place where the Jewish people would put their garbage and their human waste and their dead animals and the unclaimed body of Gentiles. And it was a place, as Josephus, a first century historian, describes it, where there was continual fire and burning and maggots and worms. And when Jesus wants to describe what hell is like, he uses the word Gehenna. 
This is why we read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus can say, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into, not Hades, but Gehenna, hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell, Gehenna, same word. Or in the parallel account in Mark's gospel, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And then he adds in the next verse, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's why unbelievers need a new body suited for this place. Now, these are dramatic terms. And of course, if you know the text, Jesus is not literally telling you to pluck out your right eye. He's not teaching mutilation. He's teaching mortification. For if you plucked out the right eye, you would still have the left eye as an inlet for sin. And if you cut off the right hand, you'd still have the left hand to execute the temptation. But on the surface, it seems rather dramatic, but Jesus wants you to understand that hell is a dramatic place, and you had better learn to treat sin as sin would treat you. Unbelievers will be excluded from the kingdom of God, and they will go to this place of eternal wrath where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And what is even worse, like the rich man who goes there, he is completely cognizant of what is happening. He has his full mental capacity operating. He's in misery, he's in pain, he's in torment. He even thinks of his unbelieving brothers who need to be warned lest they go to this place of judgment. You know, if you've ever been in misery or great pain, I can really say I've only been in awful, excruciating pain for one season of my life when I got my arm caught in a lawnmower. But you know, even when you're, you're in pain, Somehow in your mind, you manufacture hope. Maybe you're an extremely cold, frigid place where you can hardly feel your body, or it's so hot and you think, well, if I can just get some painkiller, or if I can just get to a warmer place, or if I can just get to a cooler place, and there's always a sense of hope that things can change. But in hell, you cannot tune out the pain, and you cannot get any relief. One writer some 45 years ago wrote these words, imagine the person who has just entered hell, a neighbor, relative, co-worker, friend. After a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth. But after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain, not that it's become tolerable, but that his capacity for it is enlarged to comprehend it, yet not be consumed by it. Though he hurts... He is now able to think, and he instinctively looks about him. But as he looks, he sees only blackness. In his past life, he learned that if he looked long enough, a glow of light somewhere would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and strains to focus his eyes, but his efforts yield only blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits. He sees nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to him, smothering and oppressing him. Realizing that the darkness is not going to give way, he nervously begins to feel for something solid to get his bearings. He reaches for walls or rocks or trees or chairs. He stretches his legs to feel the ground but touches nothing. Hell is a place of darkness. Hell is a bottomless pit. 
However, this new occupant is slow to learn. In growing panic, he kicks his feet, he waves his arms, he stretches and he lunges, but he finds nothing. After more furish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in black. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, twists and lunges until he is again too exhausted to move. He hangs there alone with his pain, unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing. He begins to weep. His sobs choke through the darkness. They become weak, then lost in hell's roar. Of course, he thinks, Jesus, the God of love, can get me out of this. He cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me. Get me out of this. He waits, breathing hard with desperation. The sound of his voice slips into the darkness and is lost. He tries again. I believe, Jesus, I believe. Now save me from this. Again, the darkness smothers his words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes. When he wearies of appeals, he does what anything anyone would do. He assesses his situation and attempts to adapt, but then it hits him. This is forever. Jesus made it very clear. He used the same word forever to describe both heaven and hell. Forever, he thinks in his mind, labors through the blackness until he aches. Forever he whispers in wonder, the idea deepens, widens, and towers over him. The awful truth spreads before him like endless overlapping slats. When I have put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will have accomplished not one thing, and I will not have one less second to spend here. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too our new occupant entertains a similar ambition. In life, he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief. Perhaps even hell, if one could rest from time to time, would be more tolerable. And he learned so that the smoke of his torment, Revelation 14, 11, goes up forever and ever, and he has no rest day and night. No rest day or night. Think of that. You say, that's so awful. That's so harsh of God. No, it's not harsh, because if you want grace, you can have it. If you want love that wins, if you want mercy that never ceases, if you want forgiveness that cleanses, if you want salvation that delivers, you can have it today if you will call upon Jesus. But you must learn, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And so John tells us here, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now think your way through this. In any trial, there are three parts. There is the evidence presented against you. There is the defense that you make. And then there is the verdict that is handed down. Let's just imagine that the end of time has come. The millennium has ended You are in outer space at the great white throne judgment, and the loss of all time, including yourself, are standing there before Jesus Christ. The Christ that you ignored, the Christ that you spurned, the Christ whose name you used in vain, the Christ whom you rejected. Now you meet him face to face, and the books are open, and your sins are listed out. The evil deeds you have done, the lies you have told, the fights you have fought, the impurities you lusted over, the things you've stolen, the people you've maligned, the folks you gossiped about, all the wrong things you did, every single one is written down. And not just the wrong things you have done, but the good things you should have done. 
For James says, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And I might not, and I might add, not just the bad things you've done and the good things you should have done, but also the things that you thought. When you lusted in your heart, God wrote down adultery. When you hated with your heart, God wrote down murder. And just the things, not just the things you did and the things that you should have done and the things you thought, but also the influence that you had. Jesus said that it is better for a man to have a milestone tied around his neck and drowned in the deepest sea than to cause a a believer to influence someone into sin. No one goes to hell alone, just like no one goes to heaven alone. I mean, if you're saved, you're going to somehow, in some way, shape, or form, either through sowing the seed or through a direct presentation of the gospel, you're going to bring someone with you. And if you're lost, you won't go to hell alone. You'll influence someone. And that's why God waits to the very end of time for this final judgment. See, it's not time for the pornographer or the beer barons to be judged. Why? Because even though many are dead, they are still influencing people through their works and through their corrupting deeds. And God is waiting until the final period of human history is put on the page, and he will look at all that has happened. And God has written it down. And here there is this vile, huge, smelly list of sins in the books of God Almighty. So what will be your defense? You'll say, well, God, I didn't know what church to join. There was a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Catholic church, a Presbyterian church, an Episcopal church, a church of God, this and that. I didn't know which one to join. And God would say, I didn't tell you to believe in the church. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Somebody else might say, well, you know, Community Bible Church, I went there and week after week, I saw a hypocrite up there in the choir, and I just couldn't make the decision. God would say, I didn't tell you to believe in the hypocrite, I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, God, it was at Carl Brogy. I went to church expecting to feel good, and he made me feel bad. He preached on judgment. And God would say, I didn't tell you to believe in the preacher. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, God, I'll tell you why I didn't go forward in that church. He preached. He gave the invitation. But I couldn't go down there until I was convinced that I could live it. And God would say, I didn't tell you to believe on yourself. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Oh, God, I didn't get saved because suddenly, almost without notice, I died. God will say, when Carl Brogy preached that sermon on the destiny of the doomed, he pleaded with you to come to Jesus, and you said no. What will you say? What will be your defense? Actually, the Bible teaches you'll have no defense, and you'll give no defense. For Romans chapter 3 says, every mouth will be closed. The evidence, as it's presented, will be so overwhelming, you will be able to say absolutely nothing. And then the verdict will come. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, if you are here this morning and you leave this life, having been born just once, you will die twice, first physically, then eternally. But if you've been born a second time, at best you will die just once. 
because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you don't receive Jesus, Satan will have a claim on your soul. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a sure judgment. This is a severe judgment, but really it's a sad judgment. And you know what's so sad about it? By this statement, when God says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, do you know that means? It means your name could have been there because Jesus died for you. It means you could have received grace, but you refused it. So how does the doctrine of eternal retribution apply to us? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time. Number one, the reality of hell should increase my hatred for sin. I mean, think about this. The doctrine of eternal retribution should teach us to hate sin. Why? Because God hates sin. In fact, God hates sin so much, He's going to punish it in hell. As the reality of hell violates and offends you, so sin violates and offends God Almighty. Just as we cannot bear to look upon the horrors of hell, neither can God bear to look upon the horrors of sin. As hell revolts you and brings you to the point of hatred for it, so God finds sin revolting. And if sin is this bad and it deserves hell, we should hate what God hates. Second, the reality of hell should make me more passionate in my witness. If this biblical truth has really gripped our hearts, will it not affect the way we view unbelievers. I mean, can we see any believer this unbeliever this week and watch their petty little human activities and goals, realizing what is in store for them for an eternity? The doctrine of eternal wrath compels us to witness, both in word and in deed. It should grip you. And at times it will make you weep. It should move you to holiness. And this week, it should make a difference in your life as you pray for opportunities. Some of you can't even remember the last time you even invited someone to church. And some of you, when I announced last week, friend day, you just already wrote it off. You have no intention of bringing anybody, much less trying to invite someone. Third and finally, the reality of hell should want to make me be certain that I'm saved, should make me want to be saved if I'm unsure. Did you notice that there are no born-again Christians at this judgment, only the lost of all time? Why is the believer not at this judgment, since we too are equally guilty and have sinned? It's not here, your works are not here in God's books. Why? Because of what God says through Isaiah the prophet. I wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. For I've redeemed you. I even, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, I will not remember your sins. Peter preached in Acts 3, repent and be converted that your sins may be wiped away. There are many non-Christians who have convinced themselves, I've gotten away with my sin. But your sin will find you out. You say, Pastor, 
How could God possibly forgive the filth in my heart and what I have done? Because as Isaiah also writes, he was pierced through for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquity. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the impurity of us all to fall upon him. Do you understand that there is someone who took your place there on Golgotha? He loved you so much that he devised a plan so that you would not have to spend one second in hell. It's not a place designed for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. And the devil is the one who is energizing, shaping this world system according to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you're following after the world system, if you have a heart for the sins of this world, my friend, then you are still aligned with the wrong person. And when a person refuses God's way and God's salvation, in the end, he will get Satan's way and he will get the devil's place where he will spend an eternity. Now, there's only one book that's given here by title. It's called the Book of Life. Earlier in the Revelation, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's here for a reason. Some of them might think, oh, wait a minute, my, my, my name is in there. Here, let me find it. Wait a minute, there's my mother's name, and there's my brother's name, and there's my cousin's name, but my name's not there. No name, no entrance. On one occasion, Jesus went, and he cast out the demons there in Kersey, two Gerardine demoniacs. And you know what the people of that town said? Leave us alone. Leave us alone. And some of you here this morning, because you are a free moral agent, can say to God, leave us alone. Leave me alone. And he may give you your way. Amos says, prepare to meet your God. You know, we prepare for everything for education, for business, our homes. We buy all these insurances for our protection with no assurance of where we will spend eternity. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You can't come to God just whenever you want. No one can come to the Father unless He draws you. And if God has you here today and you're not saved, it's because He loves you. And he put one of his servants in front of you, telling you how you could be forgiven and pleading with you. But God will not make the decision for you, and I certainly can't make it for you. And if somehow I could crawl into your heart and make the decision for you, I would, but I can't. Look, I wish there was no such thing as hell, but there is. And I wish there was no such thing as sin, but there is. There is a hell, but there's also a heaven. And I'm not here today to tell you to go to hell. I'm here to tell you to to go to heaven if you will call upon Jesus to save you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one's stirring. Some of us here, we're uncertain of our destiny. You may be in Grays. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Bluffton. You may be listening through the internet or long after this message was preached. But as I have been speaking the Spirit of God has been convicting you, and you know that there's a decision that you need to make in your heart. Listen, Christ receives sinful men, the Bible says. Whosoever will may come. Whoever will call on his name will be saved.
but you must come in faith. You must believe what God promised. And God, I can tell you, can promise what he promised because he did what he did there on that cross. And when God raised him from the dead, he declared Jesus to be Lord, that he was an able substitute because he was sinless. Would you say this morning, Lord Jesus, tell him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to go to hell. But I thank you that you came to earth, that you died for me. You died instead of me. You took the punishment for all of my sin. And as the resurrected Lord and Savior, I ask you, Lord Jesus, save even me. And because you have saved me, I will openly, publicly, without shame, confess you before men. Father, help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for those who've already done this, may we re-examine our hearts. May we be still on this Lord's day and cease from our own pleasure and carefully analyze what we have taken in today concerning the doctrine of hell. May we really carefully look to see if this doctrine has been connected in our life to the people that surround us each week. Father, you said that we are to rejoice not in the things that we are able to do, but that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you told us that out there, there is a great harvest, but the harvest, as great as it is, the laborers are still few. So help us out of love for Christ and out of compassion for the lost to tell them this week. And I ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'm so glad I settled my case out of court when I was 18 years old. By his magnificent grace, he saved me. I don't ever want to be ashamed of him. Now, if you've received him and you've never openly, publicly confessed him, I want to invite you to do that today. Jesus taught, if it's real in your heart, you'll be unashamed. You'll be willing to admit him. Walking this aisle has never saved anyone. We're saved by grace and not by a single work. But Jesus can make that analogy because he knows if it's real on the inside, you'll be unashamed on the outside. And if you've never done that, I want to invite you, as Matt leads us, to leave your seat and meet me here in the front. If you've not been baptized as a symbol of your faith, you should do that. That's an act of obedience. You may be here and you need a church home. And this is a place where you know you can grow and learn and be fed and be changed and invite your friends to hear truth. If you want to help us in this great commission, we need your help. Whether you're here in Bluffton, Grays, Graniteville, I want to invite you to leave now and come right now and meet me here in the front.